0: Thank you, Lynnae, and please, uh, everyone, if you've got a Bible with you, leave uh, that passage open. If you've got it on your phone, uh, one Timothy chapter one verses eight to twenty is where we are today. I, I've been, uh, I've, uh, I've loved reading this letter uh, personally in preparation for this series, and I hope uh, if you were here last week, you had a chance to read through one Timothy. Uh, if you're brand new, this is this is what we do as a church. We work our way through. Uh, parts of the Bible and uh, this term our project is 1 Timothy. God is setting the agenda for us uh, in this letter and uh, I'm going to pray and ask him uh, to do that again for us now. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father we thank you that uh, you love us and you speak to us. As we have already praised you for this morning, we praise you that At the very heart of this world is the gospel of your son, the story of him bearing sin for us, the story of your mercy being poured out, your grace being poured out, uh, the change that comes from that, uh, the promise of a pure heart, of good conscience, of strong faith, not in ourselves but in this once and for all work. And so we pray, Father, that you would speak that word to us again. Strengthen us as you strengthened the Apostle Paul who speaks to us This word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, 1 Timothy is a call uh, to be very, very clear about what's at the center of our life uh, individually and for us together as a church. So let me ask you as uh, we head out on this passage together this morning uh, if you're a Christian, What's at the centre of your Christian life? If, uh, if, if you were to describe to someone, this is what being a Christian is all about for me, well, what would your answer be? What's at the very heart? What's the plumb line of your life as a Christian? And uh, let me add this question to that. Whatever your answer is, is it worth fighting for? Is it worth holding on to? Is it, is it worth protecting this thing that's at the, the very heart of who you are? Well, how about us together? If, if someone was to look in on St Andrew's Wurunga and, and observe us over time, uh, the things that we do and the, the, our priorities and uh, the way we behave, all of those things, what would they say is at the centre of this church? What, what drives us? Uh, what is our plumb line? And again, let me ask this. Is it worth fighting for as a church? Is it worth guarding? Is it worth protecting? Now, I ask that question... Uh, in the context of 1 Timothy, which is really a call to have God's word, the word of God our saviour, as he's called in the very first verse of this letter, the word of Christ Jesus our hope, to have that be the burning heart of who we are as a church, to keep that at the centre, to let that shape and drive everything we do. And as the Apostle Paul says in uh, verse 18 of our passage, chapter 1, verse 18, he says it's worth fighting for. It's worth guarding. If you you jump forward to 2 Timothy, that's, again, as he's speaking to Timothy, he says, that's what I want you to guard. That's what I want you to protect. The gospel of Christ Jesus, who is the only hope of the world. The gospel, which is God's power at work in this world. And as we gather this morning here in this room, all throughout uh, the the rooms of uh, this church premises and even out in the garden with the youth, that powerful gospel is going to work that's at the heart of who we are that's what we want to have at the heart of who we are but here's the thing we must not assume that it will always be the heart of this place we must not assume that uh, it will simply remain there in fact in in the words of the poet wb Yeats, he says the center can't hold it it drifts from the center other things take its place and and uh, if you know anything of church history you'll know how common that is that very easily over time uh, almost imperceptibly the center can shift and something else can take the place in the center now uh, as a church we're part of uh, the sydney anglican diocese uh, anglican churches all throughout sydney and uh, from the outside looking in uh, sydney anglican churches have a reputation of having god's word at the center it's it's one of the markers of uh, the churches of this city the anglican churches of this city and uh, remarkably, that, that pattern, that plumb line, was actually set by two guys from Yorkshire, uh, Richard Johnson and Samuel Marsden, uh, who had that at the burning heart of their ministry and came here uh, to plant that gospel here in this land as well. In fact, this week, uh, I think February the 3rd, was the anniversary of the first sermon preached uh, in sydney uh, 1788 it was psalm 116 uh, by richard johnson and his goal was to plant that gospel at the very heart of church life here in sydney now i've got to say the irony uh, of the fact that the the gospel was planted here by two men from yorkshire wasn't lost on me when some years later many years later from 1788 uh, i found myself working in a church in yorkshire In in an era when, uh, and it's still the case in Yorkshire or Sheffield particularly where I was, where almost without exception the majority of churches have moved this gospel out of the centre and in fact in many churches it's not present at all. And I remember sitting in a minister's meeting in the the time that I was there with with churches from all around the area and ministers from all around the area and we were talking about how we might reach Sheffield together and as we were talking about it, the the discussion centred on, well, a whole range of centres, all sorts of things that we say, this is what we're about, all sorts of different things from from human religion to humanism itself to, uh, well, false gospels, false teaching as it's called in 1 Timothy here. And I remember after a particularly long speech by uh, a minister who was present there about the power of having so many different ideas in the mix and the power of letting these different truths shape who we are as churches, uh, I piped up. Now, that's not my style. If you know me, I'm not known for that. But uh, I remember feeling uh, acutely how far off the mark we were as we discussed this. And I remember saying, aren't we about this word? aren't we about this gospel isn't that what we promised in our ordination isn't that what we know is the hope of this world and behind me another minister piped up and uh, said something along these lines the the narrowness that you're expressing is what's wrong with the church it is the view of uh, well this is what he said the view of a backwards dinosaur and such views will soon be extinct like the dinosaurs now how do you respond this is a, a meeting of ministers uh verse 18 here's the apostle paul's response of similar challenges in ephesus timothy who's still there in ephesus i give you this charge that you fight the good fight that you hold on to this gospel is what paul says to him and, and the fight is is not a new fight in ephesus it's been raging for some time and you remember if uh, you here last week when we read acts 20 together paul's final words to the church in ephesus he warned that this would happen and And uh, there's a number of different false words, different forces that are trying to take the centre for churches in Ephesus, from religion, and we'll think about that today, from when we get to the end of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, just plain, rank, boring materialism taking the centre, to even shifting cultural trends that can influence the way the church thinks and behaves. And today, as we look at chapter 1, we'll look at the fight that Timothy is called to take on, to silence human religion from becoming the center and a particularly human religion built around the old testament law that god has given us it seems that over time in the church in ephesus around the word of the gospel of christ jesus the word of our savior has come do you see there verse 3 of chapter 1 false doctrines lies Uh, verse 6 meaningless talk about the law verse 7 Uh, teachers of the law who are saying that's where our hope is that's where our security is and it seems the more this talk went on this talk of the law being at the center the more hearts and consciences and faith was growing shaky and so Timothy was called to fight back Now, the reference to the law in chapter 1, it's probably a reference to the whole Old Testament law that God has given us, but particularly in view is the Ten Commandments. And if you you flick forward to uh, verses 9 and 10 as he lists a series of sins, uh, it's really the Ten Commandments that he has in view. So it's most likely that that is what they were teaching. Here at the centre of our religion, at the centre of our faith, is obeying these Ten Commandments. That's how you can secure your status before God. And so Paul now warns Timothy... And he warns him, knowing that he himself had faced that same battle in Ephesus uh, with opponents. uh, You see, he names them in verse 20. He says, Alexander and Hymenaeus, uh, they they were two people that he had to battle over this issue on. And and, uh, it had reached such a tense sort of standoff, this battle. Do you see verse 20? Paul had had to hand them over to Satan. that's pretty dramatic, isn't it? And and it's not entirely clear what he means by that. But I suspect what's behind it is uh, essentially reaching a point in his discussions and debate with uh, alexander and hymenaeus who kept pursuing this idea of the law being at the center that he eventually had to uh, let them go they weren't going to change their mind he had to hand them over to satan and i think the sort of picture that's in mind you know that moment in the gospels as jesus is pleading with judas and he knows what judas is going to do and yet he still pleads and then eventually he lets him go and hands him over to satan same thing here Sometime after Paul had left Ephesus, the battle still rages on, and it seems these two men are amongst the battle. There are still those, verse 7, who want to teach the law, to have our hope, our surety of salvation, be works of the law rather than the work of faith that God wants us to have. That's the battle, but but here's the question What's so wrong with having the law at the heart of church life? I mean, after all, it's not an arbitrary law, it's God's law. He gave it to us and it's a a good law. He gave it to us for our good. So why not have this law at the heart? And remember, the law that uh, is being spoken of here is the law of God's Old Testament law that he gave his people, the the Ten Commandments that he gave them at Mount Sinai, having rescued them from, from Egypt. What's wrong with centering life as God's people around this law? I mean, surely it's a good way of actually being able to measure in quantitative ways uh, how we're actually going as God's people how we're measuring up and I want to say to be honest that's often how Christians and the church are viewed by the outside world That that at its heart Christianity is about rules and because of that perception unbelievers I think are likely to respond in in one of two ways if they think that's what Christians are about that's what church is about it's about rules they'll respond with one of two ways. I'll either think Christians are hypocrites. Uh, They fail to live up to the rules that they're trying to impose on others. So why would I even listen to them? Uh, And if they don't respond with that, here's the other response that I've heard a number of times. They'll respond with self-assurance. I'm all right. If that's what it's about, I'm not a murderer. I don't steal. I'm, I'm not dodgy. I'll be okay. And on the flip side, from, from the inside looking out, uh, because of this perception that, that Christianity is about rules, that church is about rules, Christians can often respond in one of two ways. E- either we respond with, with self-righteousness, in the words of the Pharisee in the Gospels, I thank God that I'm not like other people. Or the exact opposite of that. We see these rules at, at the heart of things and, and we respond with self-doubt. Burdened by guilt, I'm not measuring up. Frustrated that I can't live by the rules that if I could live by them would actually make me feel secure. Perhaps your efforts as a Christian are driven by that perception. Perhaps you're stuck as a Christian because of that perception, because of your failure to, to measure up. And alongside this temptation to live by the rules ourselves to think that's what christianity is all about there's there's also this other temptation that we're seeing in this chapter verse 7 of teaching others to do the same that's that's how we operate as a church and i've got to say as a minister the easiest thing in the world to do in a sermon is to make christians feel bad to elicit guilt uh to to leave here try harder and not just for ministers, I want to say to the parents present here. It is tempting, isn't it, as parents, to think that the way I secure my child's salvation is to keep telling them to keep the rules. Uh, that's how they'll be safe. And so here's the question as we think about it at a personal level. And I think for yourself, am I living and measuring my standing before God according to the law? Is, is that my hope? Is that my security? And if so, uh, see where it leads. Have a look at verse 19. See where it led the likes of Hymenaeus and Alexander. It shipwrecks faith. It shipwrecks faith. And so, if that's not the answer, what is the answer? If, if putting God's law at the centre as our hope and our security is not the answer, is the, the answer the world's alternative to that? What's the world's alternative to God's law? No law. Is that, is that the answer? I keep myself free from God's laws. That's how I live. Uh, uh, I, uh, I write my own rules. And the only rule I have is that, well, you can't tell me that my rules are wrong. And I won't question yours. No. You see verse 7? The problem is not the law. The problem, verse 7, is that those who would teach the law and put it at the centre there don't seem to know what the law is actually for, why God gave it to us. In fact, you see what Paul says in verse 8? He says, we know that the law is good. It's not bad. We know that it's good. If, and it's a really big if, do you see it there in verse 8? If it's used lawfully. Now, that's a a lovely little play on words that Paul does. The law is good if it's used lawfully, properly. A problem comes when the law is used for something that it was not actually given for i was trying to think of an illustration of that this week and this is the best i could come up with uh, i remember in the 1980s especially this was prominent any sort of a pool toy like a kickboard or a lilo or a whatever anything that you put in a pool to, to sort of float around on had to have printed on it something along the lines of this is not a rescue device don't use this to rescue people And the law has a similar warning on it. That's not its purpose. The problem comes when the law is our hope, when we use it to secure our righteousness. The big problem with that, well, listen to the words of Romans 3 verse 20. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. It's not built for that. And this is why Paul wants teachers of the law who are putting it at the center like that to be silenced, You see there, verse 8? We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous. Now, did you hear that? The the law isn't given for righteous people. Now, who are the righteous? Now, uh, before we rush to the conclusion, that that probably includes me, look closely at verses 9 to 11. In these verses, especially verses 9 and 10, Paul compiles, if you like, a composite sketch of uh, those who actually need the law, those who it was given for, and it's not a pretty list, is it? It's not purposed for the, the righteous, the law, it's for, well, let me read it, lawbreakers and rebels for the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practising homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. You see what the law's purpose is? The law is not for the righteous. It's there to expose unrighteousness, to show that for what it is. It exposes lawbreakers. It exposes sinners and As humans, uh, we we have a habit of declaring ourselves righteous. We, we, We go by our own measures, and by our own measure, I am righteous, I'm okay. But God's holy law tells the truth, unrighteous. And I want to say as an aside, this is key in our engagement with an unbelieving world. God's law does not lead to salvation, and we must not teach that it does, but we must also see that lawlessness doesn't lead to salvation either making up our own human rules living by our own human ethics is utterly bankrupt before a holy god god's law does what 21st century culture seems now incapable of doing it calls out sin for what it is it calls out brokenness and evil for what it is and it says no this is not where life is found and silencing that voice, as happens regularly and has happened again in Victoria this week, in the public square, does not change reality. God's law will not dismiss our sin, it will not affirm our sin, it calls it out for the damage that it does to the human life that God has given us. But, and this is key, have a look closely again at the list, the list that Paul compiles in verses 9 and 10 is actually very clever And at first glance, I think many of us might respond with this, uh, self-assurance. Even if we're not a believer, we might think, I'm not on the list. And as a Christian, we might respond again with that self-righteousness. I thank God that I am not like other people. But it is a wholly flawed view. Look at the end of the list. You see, the Lord doesn't just examine us on this list of things, but whatever, we're told here, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine whatever else is contrary to the glorious gospel of God. And see what Paul is saying here? The Bible doesn't actually separate, well, there's the Old Testament law, this is what God demanded then, and then there's the gospel, and he's changed his demands. No, the gospel and the law are together on their demands. Jesus, too, calls sin for what it is. In fact, if you read the gospels, Jesus takes all this like verses 9 and 10, and he he amplifies it. He shows us what's really behind it. Uh, Let me give you an example from the Sermon on the Mount. He says you've heard it said long ago you shall not murder that's on the list here but says jesus i tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister is subject to the same judgment guilty of the same sin you see like the old testament law and perhaps even more clearly the the gospel exposes sin and calls it for what it is but and this is crucial and here is why Paul pivots from the law in verses uh, 8 to 10 to the gospel in verse 11. It's because the gospel is purposed to do something that more than just expose sin. It can take us further than the law can. Uh, there's a great verse in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, that says the law is like a guardian. It's, it's meant to lead you somewhere. You're not meant to stay just with it. It's, it's leading you to something better, to salvation for sinners through Jesus Christ who is our hope. And if we teach that the law is at the centre, we leave each other in the dock with the law as our guard. That's all we do. We need to teach Christ Jesus at the centre. For whereas the law exposes and convicts us and condemns us, and we need that truth rather than lies that we tell ourselves, the gospel of Jesus Christ brings, we're told in this chapter, mercy and grace and peace with god our father the the gospel of christ jesus brings pure hearts and good consciences and sincere faith that's where it can lead us the law can't do that and it should not be taught that it can but the gospel can and paul was entrusted we're told in verse 11 to teach that gospel to guard it to protect it and and now in verse 18 he says to timothy now i'm entrusting you with that same job keep it at the center Let that be at the centre of the church in Ephesus. Fight for that, Timothy. Why fight? Well, let's finish with this. Uh, Here in verses 12 to 16 is Paul's answer why it's worth the fight. And the answer he gives is in the form of a story. He tells us a story. It's a simple story. It's the story of the gospel. And the way he tells the gospel story is he tells his own story. Have a look at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he has judged me faithful appointing me to his service even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man but I received mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief the grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, see there verse 12 there's the power of the gospel in just four words you want to see the power of the gospel speaking of God Paul says "Do you know what God did with me he judged me faithful he reckoned that of my life faithful that's who Paul is and no Paul didn't judge himself faithful and others didn't judge him faithful the Lord didn't judge him faithful God judged him faithful how did he do that I mean Paul is the last to deserve that sort of reckoning that judgment over his life when you look at the rap sheet that he describes there hes a law man through and through paul as to righteousness he says in philippians based on the law faultless but as to having his knee bowed before christ jesus as his savior as to having jesus be his hope and jesus his king faithless and from that rebellion a life of destructive sin was born, and we see that in the book of Acts. Uh, we read Acts 9 uh, just now, earlier uh, this morning, but if you go back one chapter, Acts 8, you'll see this man, Paul, standing and smiling as Stephen is stoned to death for his faith in Jesus. A moment that no doubt is burnt in his memory. How do you come back from that? From being found out completely by God as the lord risen Lord Jesus confronts him on that road to Damascus is the answer law is it try harder paul no you see the answer four words at the end of verse 13 but i receive mercy i mean how dare such a man receive mercy but that's exactly what he's given and it shouldn't surprise us because if you remember back in verse 2 of chapter 1 this is the business that god the father is in he's in the business of mercy that's his business mercy for a man who verse 13 we're told acted in ignorance and unbelief now now don't get the wrong idea about that ignorance it's, it's not paul saying you know it's my get out of jail free card i had mitigating circumstances i didn't i didn't know no it, it's not that at all it's more like what what happens when jesus prays on the cross you know what he says on the cross is, as they're nailing him to the cross he says father forgive them they don't even know what they're doing they don't know the depth of the offense of killing the son of god and it's the same for paul he had no idea how profoundly wrong his sin was before god and until you or i are face to face with the risen king jesus as the apostle paul was we will have no idea how profoundly evil the sin of rejecting him of king as king is and taking the life that he has given us and the breath that he gives us right now and and living opposed to him but says paul i receive mercy (laughs) Forgiven, washed clean, judgment withheld because judgment fell on the mercy giver. And along with mercy, do you see God's other response in verse 14? Grace. Paul, Paul, actually, in verse 14, he invents a word. Uh, he says grace abounded uh, or overflowed. You imagine a cup that's been filled and it's just f- overflowing now. And he, then he thinks, well, that's not enough to describe what God has done. I'll I'll whack the word super in front of it. So, it's super overflowing. So, if you can imagine a cup overflowing that's even more overflowing, that's what God's grace does. That's the power of the gospel. And again, verse 2, that's the business God is in, grace. So powerful, isn't it? But, verse 15, so simple. It's not like the endless and pointless speculation of the law teachers This is a gospel that you could write on the back of a drink coaster. But it can change your world forever. Do you see it there in verse 15? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And of that gospel, Paul is exhibit A of sinner. And he is exhibit A of the power of God's mercy and grace to turn a life around. And then this, and we'll finish with this. Have a look at verse 16. Do you know why God chose to show mercy and grace to Paul? Verse 16, for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example of those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Do you see what God is doing as he pours out mercy and grace on this man? He shows mercy because he's not finished showing mercy in this world. He's not shut up business. And you and I, if if you are someone who has received this mercy and grace, you need to know that uh, the reason he gave you that mercy is he wants you now on display in this world to show how patient he is, to show that he wants others to come to believe and receive eternal life by this mercy. That's still his core business and and it must be ours. Uh, Wherever you go this week, he wants you to have that story at the very heart of who you are. I have been shown mercy, that's who I am. That's what he wants to be, the heart and the plumb line of our church. That if people follow the path of who we are, they won't find us in our fake self-righteousness. They'll find the God who is their saviour and Christ Jesus is who is their hope. Now let me pray for us. And I'll simply pray by uh, reading verse 17. So let's pray together. Now to the King, eternal immortal invisible to the only god we honor and glory forever and ever amen we're going to listen to a song on video just as we finish up this morning i'm going to encourage you while it's playing to consider for yourself what is at the heart for you at the moment whether it is this gospel or whether something else has taken its place and consider who